0: Ephesians chapter three. we're just going to read through the whole chapter, starting off, all right? My uh, preaching professor over at Moody would hate me for this because he always tells me, you can only preach in like three verses at a time, and I've never been able to do that. So I apologize. I started off at the end of this chapter, looking at the, like just the last prayer specifically is what we're going to be focusing on. Now I was like, "Oh man, the first couple of verses before that are rich. Oh, look at those ones right before that. Those are rich too. And next thing I know, I'm in Genesis, and I knew y'all wouldn't like that. So be thankful that this is just Ephesians chapter 3. Let's read together, although y'all can read quietly to yourselves. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations, forever and ever. Everybody said, amen. That does not mean you are dismissed. Still got a little more ways to go here. I love this. As I was reading through it, it was... It was really interesting to see that Paul is, like, writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. He's writing this letter, and he just totally stops writing the letter and busts out in prayer. This is not the first time he's done this. We're only in the third chapter. This is the second time he's writing, and then he just starts praying. You know, and it's like, I know we kind of do that sometimes. We're, like, writing on Facebook. We're writing our friends, and we're, like, praying, quotation marks, praying for you. You know, but that's kind of the extent of it. Paul doesn't just stop and go, praying. You know, he's like, "This is what I'm praying for you, and this is a powerful prayer that's built and is built on purpose and meaning and conviction and experience that Paul has experienced something that he longs for everyone else who is in this church to experience too." And he's like, "I'm not going home until you experience the same God, the same depth of His love that I have experienced too." I want you to experience that. That is his prayer in this passage that I hope we can all really focus in on uh, this morning. So again, we're, kind of, we're going to narrow down this whole passage and really focus in on the last, uh, well, verses 14 through 19 specifically here. So let's look at that. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, and starts off by saying, for this reason. Paul is praying with a purpose. For this reason, there is a purpose, and we read it leading up to this. I love this, and I think it's so important that when we pray, we do not separate it from the purpose. And that purpose, as it is found in Scripture. I was reading one of the commentaries, like, it is awesome that we're able to pray. Uh, scripture and prayer all at the same time. They're not separated. So easy, isn't it, to separate pre- uh, scripture from prayer and just do one or the other? But it's like when you combine them both, you get the beauty of being able to, to pray God's will over a situation. If I went up to Pastor Tom right now and I asked Pastor Tom, can I have a youth rally and have all these teens coming in here and we'll even use the new sanctuary and we might even bring beverages. Oh, I don't know. That might be crossing a line. But if I asked him that, I would be confident that Pastor Tom's answer would be yes, right? If I went up to uh, Samuel, and I was like, Samuel, do you, do you want another Oreo? You know, asking him a question. I'm confident his answer would be yes. If I went up to Eunice, like, Eunice, can I, can I wash the dishes for you today? Yes, yes. I'm asking all these questions. I know the answer to them will be yes, because I know it's built on the the, the character of the person that I am asking. I know them well enough to know that when I ask them a question, the answer is going to be not unreservedly, it's going to be absolutely yes. And when Paul is praying this, this prayer, he starts off by saying, For this reason. And he's building that on, uh, on, uh, on God and his heartbeat and the mission that God has transferred over to Paul. And that allows him to be able to say this prayer with passion and conviction. So much so that he cannot say it was regular for, uh, for a lot of the Christians at the time to stand when they're praying. But what is Paul's posture when he's praying this prayer of conviction? He says, I bow my knees. He falls down. I don't think this is just, you know, us being like wanting to show other people that we are convicted. I think he is, he is burdened with a passion for God's people, overwhelms him, brings him to his knees, and he's praying for the people. I bow my knees. You feel it? You feel it? He feels the love of God. And he wants people not to go home with anything else but what he's praying. I bow my knees before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. You notice it says to be strengthened a couple of times in this passage. That raises a red flag in my mind. Personally, I like doing things that I can do without working out. I don't like working out. Pastor Tom likes to work out. When I moved here, I still remember, Pastor Tom was like, you know, taking all these big old boxes, you know, just throwing them out of the truck, and I'm like, oh, my back, you know, and all this other stuff. I was hurting. He works out. You can tell. I don't. You can tell. I like doing things that I can just do without having to be strengthened by working out. Don't we? I think that's true of a lot of people. Can I ever amen from anybody else who's with me in that boat? Thank you. I don't want to be alone in this. Being authentic and real, and it's hurting a little bit. He's saying that we got to be strengthened for something coming up, because we can't do it on our own. That scares me a little bit. Oh, great. Usually that's leading in. You know, you're going to have to prepare. Rowan just ran in the 25-mile, uh, uh, what was that, the uh, Chicago Marathon. She did that. I would never do that. Way too much work going into it. It would scare me. Rowan would probably say, yeah, you need to be strengthened. I'd be like, no, thank you. I'll pass. I'm happy. I'm content just right where I'm at. Thank you. Thank you, Rowan. She did an awesome job, by the way, and... Completing it. it was more than I'd ever do, but it's, he's saying you got to be strengthened, be strengthened with the power through His Spirit. This is more than your you can do on your own. He's saying you got to be strengthened with the power through His Spirit. This is bigger than you. This is bigger than me. This is bigger than any one of us or all of us collectively can do on our own. We have to be strengthened through the power of His Spirit. In our inner being, so that the Christ, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And this is the part that really gets me. I love this. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, uses as a botanical term and then also an architectural term: rooted and grounded. Architectural is obvious. You know that he's talking about being grounded. You have a foundation that, um, no matter how big and beautiful and and mighty and majestic a building you build is unless it is built on top of the, this foundation, it is useless. It's meaningless. It's purposeless, isn't it? It's it's pointless unless you have the foundation of God's love. Isn't that exactly what First Corinthians thirteen says? Unless I have love, everything I do is is worthless, meaningless. It's like a clinging symbol. I was going to have Matt Kirkland come up and just start wailing on the drums, you know, or Tommy did a great job this morning. I could get him to do it. You know, you think drums are bad when they're played and beat with everything. If you just start wailing on them in the middle of something, you think it's going to annoy you, drive you crazy. That's what happens when we live our lives without this foundation of love. Life is, it just drives you crazy, makes you pull your hair out like you're in the last seconds of a Michigan, Michigan State game. You're like, no. I can't do this. I can't live this out. My life, it's just, it, you can't do it. Life is meaningless and purposeless. I think sometimes when, when people become suicidal, and that, that's a huge topic, I don't mean to like, be a counselor or anything, but sometimes I think they realize more accurately than anyone else that life is not worth living unless we have the truth of God's love in our lives. I think they've, they've come to a place where they recognize What's the point? Symbols clanging in my head all the time. I couldn't live with that either. I couldn't live with that either. So you've got to be grounded in love. But then he also says rooted. I don't know if this is a redundant concept that he was saying, you know, rooted is kind of the same similar concept of, of foundation. But rooted in some ways implies, I think, a lot more to me than just, than just kind of a, a foundation to hold strong like roots do. Roots are very important, not just for their structural stability that they add to a plant, but also because they are a source of what? Nourishment, food. You know, the, all the nutrients and the water come up through the roots and feed the plant so it can thrive, like our middle school name is Thrive, so that the, the plant can thrive. What does, that have, what does it have to be rooted in? What do we have to be rooted in as the church? We have to be rooted in God's love. I think of, uh, has anybody done one of those experiments like back in, I don't know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, where you get the carnation and you stick the carnation in the colored water. All of a sudden, your white carnation is preferable. Your white carnation, what? Takes on the color of whatever, if you put purple food coloring in there, all of a sudden, your white carnation turns purple or pink or blue, whatever colors you put in there. I think that's what God is saying, you know, being rooted is that you take that nourishment and nutrients and then it colors your life. It transforms your life to be something totally different than you were before. I think that's kind of the the idea that Paul is trying to get here. So he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength. There it is again. I don't like those verses. Strength to comprehend. With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now it says, so that you may be able to comprehend. But then it goes on to talk about how it's incomprehensible. It's a, it's, it surpasses knowledge is how he says it specifically. It does that... Uh, I was wrestling with that. It says it surpasses knowledge. Does that mean simply that we're called to to experience the love and depth of God and that it's simply un, un, under, understandable, that we cannot attain it, uncomprehensible, or for all you Princess Brides um, fans out there, inconceivable? Is that what he's talking about here? And I don't, I don't think it completely is. I think there's a certain realm of that, that we are not able to fully take in the full capacity of the love of God. But I think it's saying that love of Christ trumps reason. The love of Christ trumps reason. What matters most, head knowledge or heart knowledge? Heart knowledge. When I ask one of those great life questions, why did God love me? We look for a reason. But what just trumps reason? I don't think we can ever find a reason why God loves us. Other than... God is love. And when he's talking here about God's love and saying that it surpasses knowledge, I think it's kind of like the Trump card of of life and of the world, saying that God's love is a reason, is is surpasses all knowledge. That is the reason. That's what matters. Not just the head knowledge, but the heart knowledge. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge. I want to tell you a little illustration here. Um, How many of you have been out to Arizona? Anybody? A couple of you? A couple of snowbirds that like Arizona. I grew up in Arizona from sophomore year in high school to a couple of years into college, probably about five years all total. I got to tell you, Arizona is one of the most amazing places in the whole entire world. Incredible. Specifically, I went to a place that probably all of you have seen pictures of and heard of and studied about, a place called the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is one of the most absolutely gorgeous, majestic, incredible places I have ever visited. I live in Flagstaff, and so we'd go like 70 miles away to Grand Canyon for weekends and We'd go there and uh, spend days, and and even week, uh, you know, we'd go out and hike and just explore the Grand Canyon all over the place. And most people, when they go up to the Grand Canyon, are like, yep, that's a big hole in the ground. But you don't fully get to experience the Grand Canyon until you hike it, until you start going down all the way to the bottom. And then you're like, wait, this is easy. I don't know what they were talking about. And then all of a sudden, you start your journey back up, and then you're like about to die and then the audacity of the people who are riding their little mules all the way down and up, and they're coming by, and you're just like dying of starvation and in thirst and heat exhaustion, and these people come, you know, prancing on their little mules down, down the Grand Canyon, and we did not like those people at all. I think hate would be a pretty close to accurate term that we had for them. They had right away, so we had to get off. That was a, one good thing for, about them is that we had to get off the trail and sit down so that they could pass, and so we actually got to get to have a break without everybody else in our group thinking we were weak and tired. So that was the one good thing about them. But oh, the other good thing is that when they were coming by, we got to name them. We'd always say it, think this out loud too, because we just like to mess with the tourists and be like, "Oh, there's Old Buck. There's Lightning." There's gimpy or trippy or, you know, just whatever kind of names you can think of these, these uh, you know, mules to instill as much fear and get back at these tourists riding the mules down in the Grand Canyon. I apologize to any of you people who fit in this category of riding mules in the Grand Canyon. But there's something when, when you hike the Grand Canyon and explore, get off the trail and find the, the caves with stalagmites and stalactites in them. There's something incredible. They're not marked. You've got to go and explore to find them. Uh, when you go and find the mines that used to be in the Grand Canyon, you know, and you're like, oh, you know, you never know when the floor is just going to, like, drop off or, you know, the ceiling come in on you, and you're just kind of scary, you know, when you go in and start exploring, getting off the beaten path and starting to see all these different spots. When you, uh, when you start hiking in, And you don't have enough water to possibly sustain you for the whole trip, so you're having to, like, deposit on your way in so you can pick it up on the way back out and bring water filters so you can drink from the springs and from the Colorado River at the bottom. When you start discovering that the Grand Canyon is not just a hole, but it's filled with oases, you know, water, there's this place called Thunder River that has these two huge spigots Coming out of the side of the wall and in springtime when it's flowing, it just shoots out, cascades the down side of this like, desert and these cliffs and comes into this river that is teeming with trout. And so part of our food options while we were uh, hiking this trail was to, to fish, catch our food out of the stream and, and be able to catch these fish that probably have never seen anyone, never seen a lure before. It's incredible. It's glorious to be able to, when you're you're parched, to be able to go and put yourself underneath one of these waterfalls and just let it wash over you. You're like, wow, this is incredible. This is amazing. There's all kinds of wildlife, bighorn sheep. There was this canyon I was walking down, a little slot canyon, and like 15 feet, just just from the split from where it started. I looked across, and there was like seven or eight bighorn sheep right there, right next to me, and they just stood there. And the sun's, like, just coming over the, the canyon walls and illuminating them in a way that only happens in the Grand Canyon. It's just one of those majestic kind of moments. I didn't wish I had a gun or anything. I just enjoyed it. You know, I'm not a hunter. If, if you were hunters, you're probably like, ah! You know, it's just killer. But seven or eight, you know, bighorn sheep right there. Um, one of my buddies saw a turkey once. It was in one of the oases. And, and I was going to go over and try to beat it over the head and eat it for dinner. I was young and immature. Don't worry. It's not recently here. But he was like, no, John, you can't do that. And I was like, I've, I've got to. You know, it's what men do. You know, you just got to provide for yourself and eat. And, and uh, he was like, no, we can't do that. They're protected. It's a national park. And I was like, all right. I walked away and turned around, and my buddy Eric picked up that club and was going after the turkey. And I was like, you little punk. But I called him back, and I was just like, no. But anyways, I, I digress. But there's like all these stories come flooding to my mind of when we hiked the Grand Canyon. Uh, you know, we're going down these these paths that were not made by the park service. They were made by these goats that we had seen earlier. You know, when you're walking on them, you've got an 80-pound backpack on your back there. You're walking, and there's a, a rock cliff on your right side, and there's a, a cliff all the way down to the bottom, like hundreds and hundreds, thousands of feet down the other side. And it's all I can do not to crawl to get through the Grand Canyon. You know, and you're just like the fear is gripping you, but you're working through the fear and, and facing it. And it's like you get to all these places that are spectacular and majestic and amazing. It's incredible. Am I get my point across. I love the Grand Canyon. I say all of that. I say all of that because there's one thing that really ticks me off more than the people riding the mules all the way down. And that's the people who spend thousands of dollars coming from all over the world to make it all the way to the Grand Canyon. And they settle for a 2D picture. Get all the way there. Sometimes they ride a train, you know, and sometimes they drive in their cars. They get all the way there. They walk on these well-manicured and groomed paved sidewalks that are very, very level. They walk all the way over the edge, a predetermined edge that has safe railings around it. So you can go over there and look over the edge and be, ooh, you know, get a little bit afraid, but not so afraid because you're like, I'm safe, Right? get just enough afraid, just enough scared that you're like, man, that is big. Maybe even throwing a rock off if you're sneaky because that's against the rules. Don't do that. But that's kind of a fun thing to do, too, when it comes down to it. Throwing a rock down, be like, wow, that is deep. You know, taking a picture with someone. Here, take my picture. And they take a picture of you with someone else with this big, you know, Grand Canyon in the background. And you turn around, and you're like, yeah, that sure is a big hole. And then you turn around and leave. And it just can't, I can't help but hurt a little bit for people who do that, you know? Like, come away and just say it's a big hole. It's vast, large. Is that all the Grand Canyon is? so much more to it. And it's all I can do not to go up to people and say, no, you can't leave yet. you got to hike down. you got to go down. I don't care if you ride a mule. Just get down to the bottom. Go explore wherever you can. There's amazing places down there. Go and experience it. And I can't help but think that. Paul is kind of thinking something similar when he's writing this prayer for the church at Ephesus. Because he says, may you be, have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height. You get that right? Breadth, length, height, and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Isn't it so easy for us to treat the church almost like a tourist destination? Church is easy to come to when we've got padded pews, you know, paved sidewalks, full of people. You guys are awesome people. For the most part, generally speaking, you're pretty easy to love, too. You know, There's a couple exceptions out there. I won't point. Please don't point back. You know what I'm saying, though? It's not too hard. It's not too hard to love each other here. I can't help but think Paul is, you know, talking to the church and saying, you guys, you made it all the way to church. You did enough to say that you've been there. You got there. You had the experience. You just took some pictures. You posted them on Facebook even. But did you really experience a three-dimensional Experience of a church, of God's love. We are limited in our understanding of God's love and have a two dimensional picture of it when we focus primarily, and I think this is this is the death of three dimensional love of God. We are limited in our understanding of God's love when we focus when our focus is primarily on God's love for me i said this before, and I think it's worth repeating. But over-personalizing our love, the detriment to us being able to love the world around us. I'm reminded of a, of a um, Greek mythology, a guy named Narcissus. Does anybody uh, remember Narcissus a little bit, Greek mythology? He's interesting because Narcissus was the guy that was beautiful, born that way. He's beautiful. He was so beautiful that he, he went one day and... Uh, one, it's a longer story than I'm going to tell. One of the other gods kind of got him to go and look in at his reflection in the water. And he stood there and he was looking at his reflection in the water. And he was just so enamored with himself and his own beauty that eventually he ended up drowning. Have you heard that one? I think kind of what I'm th- the direction I'm going is like, I wonder if sometimes we as Christians are so beautiful. I don't want to deny the beauty that God does when he transforms our life. I'm not saying that at all. But I think it's really easy for us as Christians when we become beautiful to go and stand in front of the mirror and just be all our focus is and consumed in. And it is all consuming. I can see how it's easy to do this. But we just stand there and be like, God has made me beautiful. So true. I don't want to undermine that in any sort of way. God has done an amazing transformation in our lives but we look in the mirror at our own beauty to the detriment of being able to look around and see the same transformational power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ worked out through his spirit in other people's lives seeing them go undergo the same transformation god loves us don't get me wrong we can sing jesus loves me and still be theologically sound but jesus loves me is easy it's two dimensional I think we used to have to convince people that Jesus loved them. Now it's like, of course he loves me. Isn't it? It's like, how can you not love a guy like me? You know, I think there's sometimes a spiritual pride that comes into our lives that we have to combat. Jesus loves me. There's no reason that he should. Jesus loves the little children. We sing that song too all the time as well. That's easy. Of course he loves the children. That's two-dimensional, I think, in some ways. Of course we love our children. I wish somebody would write a song that says, Jesus loves Republicans, Democrats, and Independents, and all the politicians of the world, libertarian, socialists, and religious fundamentalists. Put that to any tune that you want. Did I I tick everyone off there? I was trying to make sure I included it. I might have left some group out. My intent there was, was to find every possible form of person that believes something differently than you that can get your blood boiling, that would make you mad and make you think, I hope I never see them in heaven. You might not say that out loud, but that's how we act towards them in our hearts. That's how we post towards them on Facebook. Isn't it? Take the person that you like to bash the most on Facebook. Usually they're politicians. That's why I'm using them. And make a song about God's love for them. Would you come to church anymore if we sang that song every Sunday? Seriously, would you? Would you come to church every Sunday if we sang that song? I just find it ironic that here in our two dimensional love, it's easy for us to love each other. But the love, when it really takes on that third dimension, isn't when we just love the people that are easy to love. It's loving the people that God has, that wants to transform. Not just us alone, but the world around us. The people that aren't like us. The people that we don't like. That's when God's love becomes three-dimensional. Let's just take Obama. And I'm not making a political statement at all, because I know people will stay on both sides of the, you know, on the aisle here. We got Republicans, we got Democrats. But he's a very controversial figure. And, And speaking of Facebook remarks, this is one spot. That sometimes hurts. Aaron and I have been talking about this a little bit lately. And I think it's important for us to realize that God loves the people that we dislike the most. For our love to be three-dimensional, He wants to use us to reach them and share about our love. Does how we talk about them matter? You know what I'm saying? Are you making the connection point? I pray for the salvation. I don't know if He's saved or not. not. I don't want to make any assumptions. But I pray for a righteous president, Obama, to be gifted, led by the Spirit of God, make wise choices and decisions that impact the world for the sake of Christ and the gospel. I, that's my prayer. But do sometimes our comments and the things that we say prevent us from being able to have that influence and impact on his life, be able to evangelize? To, you know, again, I'm, I'm trying to be careful, but it's one of those tricky situations that we have to ask ourselves. Put yourself in a scenario. Oswald Chambers says this, we're not here to develop a spiritual life of our own or to enjoy spiritual retirement. We are here to realize Jesus Christ, that the body of Christ may be built up. This is the next thing that I really like of his. He says, it will be a big humiliation to realize that I have not been concerned about realizing Jesus, but only about realizing what he has done for me. Is that going to be our humiliation personally? Is that going to be our humiliation as a church? that all we've been concerned about is really realizing what Christ has done for us, for me. I read an article about some of the top reasons people leave churches. Two of these are, I'm not being challenged. second one is, they're not going deep enough. I want to go deeper. Have you heard that from people in church a little bit? Sounds like a really spiritual reason on the surface, but more often than not, I think it's used as an excuse to leave and not to have to love people in the church who are sometimes unlovable and hard to get along with. I'm going to tell you this, that there is nothing deeper than God's love and nothing more challenging than for us to learn how to love each other. It's easy to go to another church. It's hard. Hard to love each other, even harder to love people who aren't like us. I love a good theological conversation, but I venture to say that if we understand eschatology better than we understand God's love, I think God's going to be disappointed. Don't you? Like eschatology. Good stuff. What does knowledge profit us? What surpasses knowledge? God's love. You want deep? You want to be challenged? Love. In this passage, Paul talks repeatedly about a mystery hidden for the ages. Verse 6, it says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I don't know if you caught that. You're probably sleeping by this point. Wake up for just a second so I can make this make this point here. I'm going to say it again. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Jonah heard that, and you know what? He just woke up and he said, I knew this was going to happen, God! You're going to let, Israel's saying, you know, in the same way Jonah and and, uh, Roger did a great job talking about that last week. But Jonah was like, God, that's why I didn't want to go and show your love to the Ninevites. Because I knew you were going to let them in. I knew you were going to let them in. Jonah's ticked off because he knows that the love of God has a, a dimension that he doesn't like. I'm all good when it's God's love for me. That's not a problem. But when it comes to God's love for other people that I don't like, that becomes a problem. And it becomes a problem for us. Israel was doing on a national level. Jonah was doing on a national level what we do personally. They over-nationalize their faith. We over-personalize it to the exclusion sometimes of those around us. Let's look at the dimensions of God's love real quick here. A couple more minutes left, and I'll try to go quick. What is the height of God's love? God the Father's love for His Son, Jesus. A perfect Son. For those of you who have kids, you know they're imperfect. But if you talk to these parents, especially grandparents, you would think that they were perfect kids. You know, they're rebellious and destroying your house and everything else. It's easy for us to overlook all those things and think our child is perfect. And we love them. Immensely loved. But imagine God's love for an actually perfect son. Incredible. An actually perfect son who is obedient unto death. Who was respectful and saying, Not my will, but your will be done. God's love for his son is the height of God's love. That's the height of God's love. And it's a beautiful thing that we don't have time to study this morning. I wish we could, but for the sake of you know, keeping going, we got to look at God's love for his son, a perfect son, and see how it, that was brought down to the depth of God's love is that he reached down for you and for me, that we are sinners, that we aren't righteous. But while sinners Christ died for us, the height of God's love, Jesus died to demonstrate the depth of God's love for you and me. So that he could show us the breadth and the length of God's love, the 3D dimensions of God's love. How does he do that? Second Peter 3:9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slack, some men count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's great. How are they going to come to repentance? Unless someone goes and tells them. How are they going to know? How are they going to come to repentance? The Great Commission. God says they're going to come to repentance because He's going to use you and me. Acts 1.8. Go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. You've got to tell these people. He expects us to be the breadth and the width the third dimension of his love. See, God's love is like a waterfall. It was poured out in his son, Jesus. Overflowed from there, poured out into our lives. I think God expects our lives to demonstrate his love, not that we're like a cup. I've seen sometimes preachers say that God's love fills us up and then we go and pour out ourselves into other people. It's kind of a cool little illustration, but imagine a waterfall that is is endless in capacity, is overflowing and is cascading down into your life. And when you are filled with the love of God in your life, you cannot help. It's not a matter of me being like, oh, got to pour out again. Oh, I'm so tired. Fill me up. That's not how we love. Our, our, we love by being so close to God and His Son, Jesus, and so understanding His love uh, For us in that personal sense and what he has done, not just for us, but for the whole world, that we just bubble up and it flows over into everybody else. The question has been asked, why did God create us? Because he's overflowing, bubbling with creation and, and creativity. Why did he love us? Because God is love and there's nothing else that he could have done because that's part of his character. It just overflows. It seeps from, he can't help. It's like, whoops, I just loved you. I'm sorry. That's kind of what it's supposed to be for, for us. That as it keeps falling into our lives. God's love cascades into our lives. It fills up, overflows onto other people. I'm sorry. I can't help you. I can't help myself. I just got to love you. Isn't that the way we're supposed to live our lives for the Lord? Not that you have to apologize for loving, but that'd be kind of cool. Why does God want us to go? Why does God want to use us to go and preach the message of redemption? I struggle with this because sometimes I think, wouldn't it be easier if, I mean, God already did it once, certainly could do it again. Jesus seems like a pretty effective preacher, miracle worker, you know, uh, however you want to look at it. He seems pretty good. Why does he want to use us when, I mean, it seems like you just keep using Jesus going around all the different places. There's some religions that think he did. Why does he want to use us? How many of you guys have witnessed to someone, shared with someone, prayed for someone's salvation, and you have thought some of these thoughts? That guy is so lost. That girl is so blind. That guy is filled with hate. That woman is bitter. That guy thinks he's perfect. That girl thinks she's never done anything wrong. It will be a miracle. If she ever changes, I can't stand that person. Don't even want to be around them. It takes everything I have to be able to witness to them. Have any of you thought those things when you're witnessing? I think the reason, one of, I don't pretend to know the full mind of God, but I think one of the reasons that God wants to use us in his redemptive plan to spread the gospel. I don't know if you've had this realization before, but I've been witnessing to people like this, and I've asked these questions, I think these things. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, it clicks on my head. I'm like, God, is that what I look like to you? That scares me. I think God wants to use us in the redemptive plan to share his love. Because when we see these difficult people who are rebellious, who don't listen, who are blinded, who are sinning, and don't like their sin, we, we look at them and we're like, don't you see it? And God was doing the same thing for us. You know, that passage, I think it was uh, Jesus was talking about those who are forgiven much, you know, love much. And I always thought growing up, I grew up in the church, I was saved when I was four. I kind of always thought I was on the side of being forgiven little, and it was okay for me to love little. I don't know if anybody else of you are in that same boat. I mean, when you're really real and authentic with it, I think a lot of us are. But The older I get, I really start to realize the depth of my depravity and my sin. The older I get, I'm... And the more people I see, I'm just like, God, that's who I am. We're all on this, in this woman's boat who was, who was a sinner and, and the Pharisee was trying to condemn and God said she was forgiven much, so she loves much. Guys, we've got we to gotta look and see. Yes, God has forgiven me so much. I need to love much. I think our love is a direct and proportional image and picture of our concept of how much God loved us and forgave us. How we love others is directly correlated to our perception of what God forgave us and loved us. That makes sense? That scares me a little bit too. Because I know how much God loves me and I know there's a disconnect with how much I love other people. That's a challenge for me. I hope it's a challenge for us here at Calvary Baptist Church. One last passage, and then we'll close up. First John 4, 7, and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God, uh, but that God loved us. We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us. I think it says that because if we love one another, it proves at a very important point that we get it. We understand what God has done. Let's pray. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. All of God's people said, Amen. Amen.